even if I can't walk. There's been plenty of times that I've used crutches to get to the start line, um, to get to my garage, to get my leg over a bike. And then as soon as I leave my crutches and I leave the garage behind, I am no longer in pain. And I can take my bike places where my two feet can't take me. That's the voice of Meg Fisher. Meg is a Paralympic gold, silver, and bronze medalist, 10-time world champion, and an incredibly inspirational woman. She's overcome adversity to become a professional cyclist, a physical therapist, coach, and motivational speaker. In this interview, which might be my favorite yet, Meg shares her story of hope and resilience. And although her story might be different than yours, I think it's a theme that will resonate with everybody listening. How the bicycle can be used as a tool to overcome our greatest challenges and discover the deep, deep strength that exists with inside us. This interview is coming up right after the intro. You're listening to the Femme Cyclist Podcast, and I'm your host, Kristen Bonkowski. Like most of you, I'm a bicycle-obsessed rider and sometimes racer. Each week, I'll bring you interviews from inspiring women and offer tips and tricks to help you thrive on the bike. At Femme Cyclist, we celebrate all forms of riding and all forms of women. So whether you're a road racer, bike commuter, or hardcore shredder, you'll find your tribe here. I am really excited to talk to you. I've heard a little bit about your story, but I'm excited to learn more. And that story really begins at the age of 19 when you were in a very tragic car accident. Can we start with you telling us about that? Yeah, it's, it's a privilege to join your podcast. I really appreciate what you're doing through, through media, um, various media outlets to try to uh, share our passion for cycling. And um, I found cycling after my car accident. Like a, a lot of people, I learned to ride bikes when I was a little kid, but it was never something that I, I took to. I, I found my love, my first love and passion in tennis. And so when I was 19, uh, my best friend and I had just finished uh, teaching a tennis class and we were driving from Chicago, Illinois, uh, along I-90 to Missoula, Montana, and our car rolled eight and a half times. There's no reason for it found. Um, we were responsible kids. It was the middle of the day, June 30th, 2002, and our car, our small SUV, um, for some reason drifted, and then we overcorrected, and it tumbled eight and a half times, finishing on its roof. My, my best friend, Sarah Jackson, she perished not long after the accident, and I was then life-flighted from the middle of South Dakota to um, Rapid City Regional Hospital, where I underwent uh, several surgeries, many, I don't remember how many exactly, but most pressing was uh, a closed head injury. Um, after the accident, my pupils were fixed and dilated and I wasn't breathing on my own. So they had to relieve the pressure in my skull. So I just had a wee bit of brain surgery and then I got to take a nap in a coma for a little bit. And then um, they did some other surgeries because uh, my left leg got mangled in the car accident. It's not sure exactly how that happened, but um, basically I, I ripped my foot off. Thankfully that, that head injury was significant enough um, that I don't remember anything. I don't remember any pain. I don't remember the accident. Um, 
I don't remember any of it. And mm-hmm. I guess I'm lucky for that. Um, I woke up in the hospital. And I remember waking up and I don't know like how other people wake up from comas, but it's definitely not like in the movies where your eyes open and the lights are on and um, they stay on. For me, it was kind of this like bad disco party where the mm. lights were like a strobe light. Like I'd open my eyes, I'd get a little glimpse and then they'd be dark again. So I kind of slowly came to cognition and I remember looking down at my legs and I think we take this for granted, but when you're laying in bed with your feet under the sheets, you have like actually two little mountains, two little foot bumps. And I noticed that I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have um, two foot bumps anymore. I had uh, just one and I, I immediately thought, well, that's not good. And how am oh. I going to play tennis? Because yeah. I, I mean, I, I didn't have a full recognition of the extent of my injuries or that Sarah had passed away um, just then. I just, you, you wake up, you look down at yourself because you're in some place very foreign and I, I knew that things were things had gone very wrong mm-hmm. um, so along that journey I ended up um, getting life flighted back from um, South Dakota to Chicago to continue my recovery along that that line I um, they tried to salvage and repair as much of my foot as possible so they'd taken half of my abdominal muscles and made a muscle flap to cover where my foot had been and took a skin graft as well to try to uh, protect that what was left of my foot, which was basically just my heel, and um, sent me home to continue recovering. I think we hear a lot in, in this day and age with concussions and sports and so forth, and how uh, how significant head trauma can be. So I actually woke up with a whole new personality. Mm. I used to be painfully shy. I am not anymore. Mm. Um, I, I lost some words as well. I had to do a lot of retraining of talking to minimize the stutter and troubles that I had with word finding. And it's just amazing like, how pliable and plastic our, our nervous system is and, and our ability to learn. I, I am continually amazed. And I got to see it firsthand from the inside out, I guess. So I, I went back to Chicago, um, eventually was fitted with a prosthesis slowly regained the ability to walk. Um, even before I could walk though, I was on the tennis court. Somebody came with a office chair with wheels and I couldn't stand and they they knew that that was my motivator. That was, I needed something to mm. hold on to. And so that was tennis for me. So I was on the right. court scooting around on a tennis, uh, scooting on an office chair, um, hitting balls. I actually got a job teaching tennis from an office chair. So I was back on the court and that was hugely significant because I think we all kind of have an identity of ourselves and I, I had lost mine. Yeah. And then, so tennis was it at first, um, 11 months after our first accident or my first accident and those injuries, I elected to have more of my leg amputated due to some complications that mostly resulted in pain. I was convinced that having a higher level revision would result in higher function, more mobility, the opportunity to use cooler prostheses, and regain more of my athletic identity that I'd lost. Was that the hardest part for you through all of this, losing that sense of identity? I'd say the first, the the hardest part was losing Sarah. I think if you have somebody in your life that really resonates, you know, that's close. Like she was, she was my motivation. She's the nicest person I ever knew. She was the strongest, most physically strong person I ever knew. She was the best writer. She could cook really well. I just, I really admired her 
all facets of her being and she really inspired me so losing her presence in my life was the biggest loss Mm. although her memory is incredibly strong for me and all of those things are I think what drove me or have driven me and continue to drive me today if that makes sense yeah it does yeah certainly I went from being 19 year old years old, uh, a collegiate tennis player. I could do anything I wanted. I could ski uh, from the tennis courts in the University of Montana. You can actually see the local ski hill. Okay. Um, after class, I'd go fly fishing. I mean, I could do whatever I wanted. I could play tennis. I was the fastest girl in our team at the time. I could outrun some of the guys. Um, I was very fit. And so at 19, nothing hurts, you know, you don't have yeah. many bumps and bruises. And so to go from being so physically capable and I guess uh, intellectual too, I mean, to, I, I lost the ability to talk for, or not really talk, but I had trouble talking. Um, so I, I lost a lot and I lost a lot of my friends, not intentionally, not anything through them, but for a chunk of time, my life stopped. Yeah. So was that summer, um, I was full on recovering And everyone else went back to college and continued building those memories with their friend groups. And um, I didn't. So losing Sarah would be the the first one. But then just having to restart everything. Like I I did lose that athletic personality um, component to myself. I I didn't know if I'd be able to stand and know if I'd be able to walk or to what capacity. If I could go back to Montana, if I could, you know, there's just so many questions. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. And I mean, I just imagine if I went through something like this, that I would be very depressed. Is that how you felt initially? Oh, yeah, I think no. Um, I was certainly sad. And I think that that's 100% normal. But I wouldn't say that I was depressed at the time. Really? Um, I think I I cried a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. but I don't think that necessarily means that I was depressed. Uh, okay. I certainly remember like trying to put toothpaste on my toothbrush and just dissolving into tears or like my mom during my recovery in the hospital and then at home they continued she would read books to me and then as I regained the ability to see because my eyes couldn't focus really well after the car accident but as I would gain the ability to read like I would read to her and I would like open up the book and I would just start crying and I don't think like depression and sadness and I'm certainly no expert but that's they're two different things and I was sad yeah but I also had my mom. I had some other people in my community that literally like didn't let me go too far down a dark mm-hmm. hole. Like uh, one woman, she she was retired. She didn't have a job. So she would come over and play backgammon with me or she would come over and take me to the tennis court. She was an exceptional tennis player and she would give me tennis lessons. And she's like, when you get back to standing, you're going to have an awesome volley. You know, all the silly things like that that were actually – added together were monumental and yeah I I I think um I was never given the opportunity to give up Mm. what about yourself what things with inside yourself not just the community around you do you feel like helped you to overcome that trauma and become who you are today rather than just sinking which is very possibly could have happened yeah I I get asked a lot about like like the sadness component and I, mm-hmm. I, I think I do get, I do push back against that a little bit because um, I think it's a lot harder to give up than people think. And mm-hmm. I think 
when somebody sees me objectively, like you think, man, or you hear the story, like, wow, she must have gone through a lot. And that, yeah, yes, there was a lot of physical pain. Yes, there was emotional pain. Um, and I think, I guess, what's within me is I'm, I'm stubborn. I am stubborn as I'll get out. <laughs> and that can be, I think it gets a negative connotation a lot of times, but really, I think it can take you really far. Yeah. If you let it, I guess it can take you really far in the opposite direction, but, um, Early on in my recovery, I met with a prosthetist. And because I had so much of my limb remaining, I just assumed that the technology in 2002, I mean, we were in the year 2000, that they would be able to just kind of give me toes, like give me a midfoot and toes that would wiggle and be bionic, and I would actually be better than before. Mm. And early on in our working together, he said, sweetheart, you'll never be as good as you were. And that was just such a deflating thing, right? But only for an instant, because I thought, well, what do you know? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm going to show you. And that's kind of been uh, that opposition that is kind of been one of the, the, the logs on the fire, I guess. I can definitely say that I'm better than I was. I'm different, I'm definitely different, but um, um, I've evolved, I've gained skills, um, and I've done more with one foot than I ever th- think I would have done with two. So I, I think there's that. I mean, there's a few years after I had um, my leg amputated for the second time, I had some complications, and I had another doctor tell me I would never walk again. And then that was hard at like, I was 22, maybe I was getting ready to graduate and been on crutches forever. And that was devastating. However, that same prosthetist who said, um, sweetheart, you'll never be as good as you were. He came in on the weekend, um, built me a leg so that I could walk across the stage at my college graduation. And then from there, it just continued on. And then I got paired with a service dog. Um, and she, she really opened up the horizons. So I owe a lot to that first prosthetist who, who laid out that challenge, you know, trying to keep mm. my expectations realistic. I mean, yeah, I, I've had a lot of other people's help, help of my service dog. Yeah. And I guess some internal grit. 11 months after that second amputation you had, you did your very first triathlon. Why did you do that race? Yeah, it was a pretty crazy two years to to get hurt and then 11 months later have more leg amputated Mm -hmm. and then 11 months later to toe the line at my very first triathlon um I remember watching that triathlon years before and thinking wow or seeing the Ironman on tv and just not being able to fathom a body doing three sports in one day I thought that that was the epitome of athleticism and in my journey of regaining my athletic identity I thought well I'm gonna do a triathlon so many times I'd kind of put these limits on myself Mm. that that weren't actually real but I you know I said well I am a tennis player I am a college student like I had all these adjectives for myself right but I didn't necessarily include triathlete I didn't think I could do something like that I didn't call myself a runner even though I could I didn't call myself a swimmer even though I could you know all these like you know the how you identify yourself Yes. And um, so I, yeah, I would definitely not have identified myself as a cyclist back then. I didn't know who I was after mm-hmm. the accident. I had a, what a great opportunity to write the blank slate. 
but I um so I'd seen the Grizzly Triathlon. It's a sprint distance triathlon here in Missoula, Montana. It's a lovely event. It has a pool swim, so that's very inviting for people who maybe haven't done a triathlon before because you don't have to maybe consider, like, do I need a wetsuit? What? How do I swim in open water? It's, yeah. You're, you're swimming in the lanes, so that's wonderful. And somebody else is even counting the laps for you, so that makes it nice. And then it's a 20K road bike ride. I have to borrow somebody's bike actually for the Grizzly Triathlon. And then it was a 5K run. I back then like hadn't actually run really. I had a running prosthesis, but I wouldn't say I'd ever gone out to run. So that triathlon had a lot of firsts for me. First triathlon, like first time swimming any length of distance after my accident. I actually had to learn how to swim straight. So, you know, if you swim with one flipper, you kind of. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) The lane line. So I had to learn to swim straight. So that was incredible I swam 20 laps consecutively wow that was such an incredible feeling and then some people the community really helped me and I had a friend lend me a bike another friend gave me a bike fit and teach me how to ride a bike I didn't know how to shift I didn't know how to turn effectively I didn't know what to do with your pedals all those things Mm. so then I biked 20k so cool and then I jogged a 5k and when I say jog that might be like even a little bit exaggerating it's like a uh, it was a shuffle. I shuffled. I mean, there's yeah. a flight, there's a flight phase in there. So that's running, but, um, I didn't go fast. The thing was that I, I wasn't last in that triathlon and, you know, nothing to the people that were finished behind me, but I, I just didn't want to be last for myself. Yeah. I was seventh from last, which means uh, yeah, again, no land speed records were set, but I shattered my expectations. How did you feel when you crossed that finish line? I felt like all those barriers that I had put up for myself didn't exist. Like all those labels that I thought I wasn't, I could be if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And um, and that kind of continued on itself. So I did more and more triathlons. Um, I tried Olympic distance triathlons. Um, that was and the community here in Missoula, especially at that time, was great. Uh, Missoula had a very strong triathlon community. Some of the U.S.'s strongest Ironman triathletes came out of Missoula, uh, Lindsey Corbin, Ben Hoffman. Mm. Um, I, we were all in college at the same time. All So uh, it was like when I say the community really inspired me, I just wanted to be like my friends. I wanted to be like the people I admired, and I didn't necessarily want to be different. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't want my leg to be anything that held me back. I wanted people to like, if I wore pants, I didn't want anybody to know that I I had a limp or that I used a prosthesis. I wanted Mm. to, I wanted to finish in the front of the pack and for them to be like, whoa, you actually don't have a leg. Like be surprised. Um, I didn't want to explore the idea of maybe, did I even qualify for the Paralympics? Did I qualify for, was I actually a Paralympic athlete um, or potential athlete? I just wanted to be normal. Is that something that you've overcome now? I mean, are you proud now of being oh, different? A hundred percent. There's been a complete switch in that personality or that. Yeah, most definitely. I'm very proud of what I can do and what I can show to myself and that I still haven't found my physical limits yet. And if anybody sees me doing it and objectively, I look very different. So not that like, I'm not trying to guilt anybody into doing anything, but if you see me doing it, chances are, if you want to do it, you can do it too. 
Right. Like if you don't want to do it, if you don't want to ride your bike a hundred miles, don't do it. But if you think you want to, if I can do it, chances are you can too. Yeah. I love that. So good. So how did you end up transitioning from um, being an amateur athlete to becoming part of the U S Paralympic team? That was a bit of a evolution and journey as well. Um, in Missoula, I fell in love with mountain biking and, um, in part that was because of Betsy, my dog. Um, she had a lot of energy and I couldn't walk enough or run enough or throw the ball enough to help her get her exercise. I saw people mountain biking with their dogs and I thought, well, shoot, dang, that's what I'm going to do. At the start of it, Betsy was more fit than me. <laughs> she would be way up the trail looking at me and I would be breathing hard, putting a foot down um, but that she kind of set the goals. Like I want to be as fast as Betsy. Yeah. So I spent a summer biking with my cattle dog. And, um, so she's very fit little creature and I got fitter. And then I got to the point where I was going on two mountain bikes at ride the day. I'd go one with her and then one for myself. And then I met other friends and new, a new community of athletes and got invited to 24 hour mountain bike races. And then I got invited to do an Xterra triathlon where I became the first uh, female challenge athlete to compete in Xterra. Mm. And that was cool. Yeah, that is cool. Um, So I've been to Maui several times and um, to Utah and raced in Xterras. And that was incredible experience. Um, So I met a a para cyclist at one of the 24 hour mountain bike races, Sam Cavanaugh, and he got my name to the the coach of the U.S. Paralympic cycling team. Also, at the time, I've been given contact number for the U.S. paratriathlon team. This is before paratriathlon was actually part of the Paralympic Games. So I, I raced some ITU races uh, with the USA on my chest, and that was awesome. I got to go around the world doing that. Mm. Um, and then I won several world championships for the U.S. paratriathlon team, and then I raced Xterra, and then I got involved with um, Paralympic cycling. And the problem was, is that I was too much of a triathlete and too much of a mountain biker, um, to actually make the paracycling team. Uh, they're, you know, just different fitnesses and paracycling right. is so competitive. I, I think initially I mistakenly thought that para sports would be less than, and if mm. you look at the, the, the meaning of para just means alongside. Mm-hmm. And so, I had no idea that the level of competition would be so fierce. And then as soon as that carrot got dangled, I just couldn't stop chasing. And um, I got, I was, became passionate about and just addicted to trying to earn a position on the team. And um, so I do owe a lot of gratitude to my two mountain bikings. I, I think I developed some really great bike handling skills. I owe my a lot to triathlon because I feel like I feel really comfortable in the a triathlon position on a tri bike. Um, however, we just kind of tweaked some of those things. And so I, I became fairly proficient at individual time trialing. And uh, then I got pretty good at pursuiting, like, mm. pretty good at road racing. And so those things came together and um, they just, I just got it, became a better, better cyclist. So I, I yeah. Does that make sense? Like there was an evolution. It, does. it, it wasn't, wasn't straight and it wasn't as fast as maybe I'd wanted. But when I made the uh, U.S. national team the first year, I won the gold medal in the time trial and in the road race. I surprised. I surprised the world. I surprised myself. 
too. Holy smokes. Um, but to, to come out of the gates like that, I mean, I, I had a fire in my belly. Why did you end up deciding to choose and focus on cycling? Why not running or swimming or continuing in triathlon? The level of competition and was mm. really high. And I think it was the opportunity for me to get, to get back to elite level sport. I suppose if I had been invited to a, a, a swimming camp, maybe even a running camp, I could have been persuaded. I certainly love those two sports, but I love I love cycling. When I was laying in the hospital bed, actually, I had never spent much time watching cycling. Cause I was always out playing. I was always out doing my own thing. So I never watched the Tour de France. It didn't mm-hmm. make any sense to me. Why would somebody ride every day? And why are they wearing different colored jerseys? And what what does this all mean? Um, but I had three weeks in the hospital to learn all about it. And so I watched it. Okay. And it was just something that I could watch. It was, they had a really peaceful voice. <laughs> and so um, it was perfect for me. Um, but I saw Lance Armstrong. I saw Tyler Hamilton. I saw Jan Ulrich, all those names from back in the early 2000s that were incredible athletes and um regardless of, of what came out later they are incredible athletes yes yes and um to see them doing what they did really like i think that that planted the seed and i could see how competitive they were and how much how hard they had to work what the teamwork meant what the sacrifice was of themselves and i think that i it spoke to me mm-hmm. so did you at that point in time decide that you wanted to become a cyclist or was that later reflecting back on that that maybe helped propel you? I think reflecting back helped propel mm-hmm. me. I think what um, motivated me to be a triathlete as well is like during my recovery, one of my physical therapists um, was also a certified athletic trainer. She was, had a dual credential. She was also a triathlete. And I thought she was the coolest person. I thought she was super easygoing, really intelligent um and athletic and I actually wanted to be just like her so I can actually say now that um I have I am now a physical therapist I also have dual credential as a certified athletic trainer and I raced for Team USA as a paratriathlete and as well as a cyclist so um I owe a lot to that person who came Mm. into my life in, in a moment when I was really searching for direction and she showed me a very positive role model yeah, you know, somebody that would was positively impacting somebody else's life, living their life well. They were healthy, they were fit, um, and just role modeled who I wanted to become. So, ten years after um, your accident and after the death of your friend Sarah, you actually won gold at the Paralympics. Was that the highlight of your career thus far? I think that's easy to say. Yes, um, I think Rio might have been a, a slightly. I don't know. Okay. I actually, I just don't know if I've had any highlights. I mean, yeah. It's all been awesome. I, it's all been awesome. But I, I mean, I think if I were writing the story, it would be perfect for me to say the gold, that gold medal meant the most. Um, and at the time, you bet. Um, it just was, it was so poetic. Um, I think after, after injuries, or I mean, we think about birthdays or we think about anniversaries, like the first anniversary is a really big deal. Second anniversary is still pretty cool. But then like the third and fourth anniversaries, they just kind of get like washed over. And then there's the fifth anniversary. Holy smokes. You know, then you're like, wow, you're five years old. You're a whole hand. And then six, seven, eight, nine kind of again, get swept under the rug. 
and then all of a sudden like the 10th anniversary of something you know it's it's a it, it somehow feels bigger or more significant so certainly 10 years after our accident and all of those injuries and her death uh, it was a big deal to then represent my country my family Mm-hmm. Sarah and all the people who helped me get to where I was I was so pleased to be standing on that stage and hopefully all of those people um, felt like they had a hand in that medal because just because I started the race you know, seemingly by myself and finished it seemingly by myself I was never alone. So. What are some other moments in your professional career that you're most proud of? I think the bronze medal in Rio was a pretty big deal. Um, had had a lot of kind of like personal and emotional trauma, trauma or just challenges going into Rio. I wasn't sure if I was going to go. My team had actually kind of like focused me on doing the sprints races and thought just like kind of, I wasn't meant to do well in the pursuit. And I think I qualified in the fourth position. So I was qualifying and going to be racing in the bronze fourth place race or I can think bronze, nothing race. And, um, as I was racing this very talented cyclist from New Zealand, Catherine Horan, you know, I had sacrificed not just me, but like my whole family, my job. A lot of people had sacrificed and, and invested um, time and energy and love in me. And here I was racing that race. And I remember thinking, okay, Catherine's a sprinter. She's going to come out fast. And then eventually I'm going to catch her. I'm going to, I'm going to be ahead in the race. And then halfway through the race, my coach told me I was down and um, I was behind her. I was losing. And I was just like, "How? what do you mean I'm losing? So six laps in the halfway mark. So each lap subsequently, he kept yelling at me, you're down, you're down, you're down. And I'm just like, how is this possible? And there's just, and then it's amazing what you can think in just a brief amount of time and feeling like I did not come all this way. I did not, you know, ask all these people to help me get here to come away without a medal. And uh, in the last 250 meters or um well actually less less than that like I beat Catherine Mm -hmm. it's uh, actually a pretty fun race to watch it's it's a little bit better than watching paint dry um (laughs) but um it's fun because I was losing the whole race and sometimes upwards of three seconds and if you've spent any time on a track losing by three seconds may as well be a mile yeah Um, and so to come back and clinch that victory was huge it just signified that like all of those kind of emotional and personal things that were going on it was like this very objective like you're doing okay kid and then additionally like I think there's a lot of sports psychology right Uh, we always know that the happiest person on the podium might be the gold medalist but the second happiest person is the bronze medalist the least happy person is a silver medalist yeah So, so um to still have made the podium and then have my teammate be on the top step so I still heard our anthem it was a blast yeah that is really cool Um, and then other you know I've had I've been really lucky to have a lot of races or being part of a lot of races and those that have meant a lot winning a 24-hour mountain bike race uh, outright in the women's category and coming in third overall uh, as a Paralympic athlete like I was the only, that? that was uh, a smaller 24-hour mountain bike race here in Montana called Rappel J, 24 hours of Rappel J. Okay. And um, so that was, that felt, that was amazing. Like, that is I, huge. I won. 
Um, and it's some of it's about showing up. Like I can put all these like be try to be humble about it. Um, but no, in fact, I won. Like I showed up. I got on my bike every hour um, in the night, uh, and I I put the time in in the distance. And uh, while it was small, it doesn't matter. Like um, it doesn't matter where you start. And I guess in some ways it doesn't matter where you finish, as long as you start and, and give it a go. So um, I am proud of that. I'm proud of Dirty Kanza. Golly, a long way. Yes. Yeah, so nowadays you're doing a lot of these gravel races. Why did you end up choosing gravel? I think like a lot of people, um, it gravel is very inviting. And I think I, I've had the opportunities to be a part of a number of bicycling communities and or subset of the bicycling community and I think gravel especially right now speaks to the need we have in our community to kind of maybe tone down the aggressiveness I think unless you are a professional gravel cyclist it uh and that is your job to prepare for these events nearly full-time like yeah those are the people that are going to be at the front of the race, way down the road, like finishing in six hours. But most gravel races are like 100 miles, 150 miles, 200 miles. They're really long, all-day events. Mm-hmm. And it's so like sustaining intensity at that level. Yeah, that's probably not for most of us. But it allows like you can kind of be the diesel engine that just keeps going. Um, racing road races is super fun. Um, some people don't like mass start races. Maybe they're nervous of their bike handling skills or they're nervous of their uh, somebody else in the races, bike handling skills or some of the courses. And you maybe have to be a bit faster. You have to spend more time focusing at that top end acceleration and speed. And again, gravel is that diesel race. You don't have to spend those hard intervals for speed. And that's, I mean, I think you can kind of compare it like a 3K pursuit and a 20K time trial and a 200-mile race are all just about the same amount of discomfort. It's just about how far you spread it out. Like, you can make anything hard. You can make a 5K run hard, just as hard as a marathon. Or you can make that 5K really comfortable or that marathon really comfortable. Same thing with a 20K pursuit. If you want to ride it sitting up on kind of one of the Dutch cruiser bikes, it'll be a really comfortable, like, 20K time trial. You're just not going to be fast. (laughs) Right. Sure. Right. I mean, unless you, you want to get down in aero bars, tuck your shoulders and like round your back and you want to be all aerodynamic, it's going to be uncomfortable. But if you find meaning, not meaning, but if you find gratification in, in that level of discomfort or finding like how much you can endure, oh man, there's nothing better than a 20 K time trial for me. Oh, love it. How do you define success for yourself in these races where you're competing against athletes that don't have any kind of impairment? Interesting question. And that's something I, I kind of wonder about sometimes. Like, how do, what, do I find, what do I find success in, especially when um, I'm looking around at my you know, racing compatriots and we don't look the same? That said, um, we all carry scars, just not all of them are visible. And yeah, I think, so, so true. I think people see me and are brave enough to share some of the troubles that they've had in their life. Or if they don't come up and talk to me, they can see me as a reflection, see my missing leg as a reflection of the struggles that they've had to overcome to get to that race or to get to where they are in their life. Um, so I think it's 
not necessarily fair to say that like even though their impairments might not be classifiable in the Paralympic sphere, meaning all people's impairments are classified or grouped in the Paralympics, you know. So while the people I'm racing against at these longer gravel races may not qualify as a Paralympian, um, I feel like we, we share in the day that it's it's going to be a hard day. It's going to be a long day. It's going to be uncomfortable. We all have to figure out how we're going to get to the race because um, it's time away from family. It's time away from work. It's time away from maybe doing something else. Um, yeah. A lot of us, like we share that same passion, that same grit in our belly that um, this is going to be fun. You often say that you are, we're, that we're all capable of more than we think we are. Um, how do we go about discovering those capabilities? That is a great question. So, uh, yeah, I, I truly 100% with every ounce of my being believe that we are capable of more than we know. And I think some of your questions earlier alluded to that, meaning or that you asked, like, well, weren't you depressed or did you have mm -hmm. elements of depression or how did you get out of that funk to do what you did or do? Um, if you had asked me laying in that hospital bed, if I would ever stand on the top step and hear the Star Spangled Banner and have somebody place a gold medal around my neck, I would have thought you were high. You were on something. You did not know. Like I had no way of visualizing that for myself at that time. And so I thought my capacities were actually quite minimal. Mm. However, like with each challenge, like, can you stand up? Okay. Yes, I can. So, Oh, I can stand up. All right. So that's something I have in the bag. And it's like with each challenge that came, I just said yes to it, more or less. Um, I just chose not to believe, well, not just chose, but like I just didn't believe there's something I couldn't do. And I, I liken that to the people, or attribute that to the people around me who didn't necessarily let me give up or let me believe that I wasn't capable of those things. Mm -hmm. um, even that professional who told me that, sweetheart, you'll never be as good as you were, he is one of my biggest advocates right now. And he doesn't remember telling me that, and I know it was something. <laughs> I know it was something he told, not in a malicious way. You know, just kind of a small comment, just trying to help me come to grips with, you know, the challenges I would have in front of me. I, I know it was not anything, but it, it, as a side note, it does show like the power of our words. Like I could have held on to that and let yeah. that define me instead of that stubborn person in me saying, "I'll show you." But um. Finding out what we're capable of most likely will be uncomfortable. And we can think about this like in high school, that project we kept putting off and off and off and off and off. And all of a sudden we were up all night writing a five page essay. We got it done. It was very uncomfortable. Or I mean, you can think of all these different tangible and intangible things that you thought you didn't think you could do, but you did. And maybe you broke up with somebody or they broke up with you and you're like, there's no way I could overcome this heartache or this sadness or this loss in my life or a job or you name it. And all of a sudden, you know, one week later, two weeks later, three weeks later, you're, you're clearly still living, even though you didn't think you could. You're still going on. You've still eventually found joy again. You've, you've, you realize that all those things you didn't think you could do, turns out you're doing them. Yeah. So I, I just try to remind people that, yeah, you're capable of more than you know. 
What about you? Do you feel like you still have capacity within you you haven't discovered yet? Oh, fully, 100%. Yep. Mm -hmm. I know. I'm confident of that. That's the only one thing I know. I love it. What are your plans for this year? What races do you have coming up? Well, this weekend, I'll be heading to Stillwater, Oklahoma for one of the monuments of gravel, which is uh, Mid-South. Now, uh, Sea Otter has been canceled. Yeah, sad. Yeah, um, although it's been rescheduled for October, so I'll be there in October. Me too. Maybe I'll see you there. Heck yeah, right on. That'd be lovely. Um, Yeah. And then um, there's some local races. We have some local gravel events coming up here in Missoula and mountain bike races, but some of the more national events. I'll be at Dirty Kanza, DK200. Um, what is it called? Butte 50 um, here in Montana. It is touted as the hardest mountain bike race. Um, there's the Butte 50 and the Butte 100, and they are known to be harder than Leadville. And I use that as a prep because I'll be doing Lead Boat this year, which is the Leadville 100, followed by the Steamboat, Steamboat Gravel. I believe it's 144 miles of gravel, and they're back-to-back Saturday and Sunday. Intense. Yeah, I'm super excited for that. Uh, I'll be going to Rebecca's Private Idaho. Um, I highly recommend people investigate that race. It's been going on for, I think, four or five years now, and it is growing, and it's a hoot in Sun Valley, Idaho. Um, None of the gravel events I've ever been to have a stage race, and this has a queen stage race. So three days of gravel over four, or three races over four days. Um, Any mountain biker, I swear, like the first day, you'll just be giddy. And things that you can do on a gravel bike are so fun. The second day is an uphill time trial. Um, and that just gets to tickle my time trialing itch. Um, it's nothing like seeing how much you have in the tank. And then the third or third stage is 102 miles around Sun Valley. And see what else I'll be doing. I'm going to try and make it to Spirit World this year in Patagonia, Arizona. I went to one of um, the cyclist menu camps last year and and fell in love with the the desert down there that's an amazing terrain and so I want to try and make it down for spirit world um Belgian waffle ride might make it on there as well I'm trying to think of any other big events I think I think that's it and then sea otter in October um then it's going to be cold here in Montana and I get to play on my fat bike so yeah that's fun too yeah biking all year round very good um, so I've got three final questions, but first, how can people connect with you and what um, what do you have to offer in terms of your physical therapy and coaching? Oh, great. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, yes. If anybody wants to follow me, I think the quickest uh, um, way is Instagram. So Meg Fisher, M-E-G-F-I-S-H-E-R. I'm there. I post there regularly. I'd love to connect with you. I also have a website go megfisher.com if you want to read more about what where I've been or what I've done um, go there Uh, I work right now at Alpine Physical Therapy in Missoula Montana and uh, feel free to reach out there I I absolutely love it and then I do some coaching on this um, as well and it, it just fuels me to help people reach the performance that they're striving for whether that be in physical capacity on a bike running or swimming um i believe in helping people find their resilience or build their resilience are there any sponsors that you haven't mentioned that you'd like to give a shout out to oh definitely i uh, i this season would not be possible for me without gore wear you're more familiar maybe with 
Gore-Tex as a brand, but they specialize in um, gore wear. So whether that be um, the shake dry rain jacket, it's made of the Gore-Tex material. It breathes, yet it is completely waterproof and it balls up into nothing. I can put it in my back pocket and it will be a staple for me this weekend at Stillwater at Mid-South because it's raining in the forecast. But um, I have been over the moon with the the products that uh, Goreware has supplied me with. And I feel really lucky to be riding a Catahoula ergonomics saddle. The saddle has um, a leaf spring in it and I, I can ride 100 miles, 200 miles, 250 miles, whatever RPI turns out to be. Um, and my undercarriage is still happy. And I think any cyclist will tell you how important um, it is to respect the undercarriage. But so I've been feel really lucky to ride a saddle like that. Okay, so final three questions. The first one is, what is your favorite place you've ever biked? Switzerland. Mm, mountain biking or? I was at the UCI headquarters in Eagle, Switzerland. So we got to do some track riding and that okay. was just a hoot. But then um, in between track sessions, we went road biking. And so we tagged France and just the riding around there. It was so fun. Um, and we've also had uh, UCI World Championships in Switzerland. It was just, I love it. I love the food. I love the people. I'm a huge Francophile. I just had a gas. It was so fun. You'll have to go back and mountain bike too, because that, that's my favorite place I've ever mountain biked. So. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's what I mean. Like, I want to go back and just, yeah, explore all of Switzerland on two wheels. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, right on. Okay. Thanks for that plug. Thank yeah. you. Um, second question is what bike or bikes do you ride? Oh, yeah. So this year I get to ride the Salsa Warbird. It's their gravel bike. It's specifically bred to be a gravel machine. It's amazing. And I've paired that with a, a Lauf fork. Um, I think if you haven't ridden front suspension on a gravel bike, the Lauf fork is truly like kind of, it is setting the standard, um, this is a quick way to see how great it is. I rode all of Dirty Kanza last year. So 201 miles. Don't let them fool you. DK 200 is actually 201 miles. I rode it without, yeah, I rode it without gloves and I didn't get any blisters. And um, I think that having that little bit of suspension just takes the edge off of it. And so I think, yeah, having a front suspension, I can't say it enough. It's great. And then I also use SRAM ETAP, SRAM Axis. Um, drivetrain it's been a blast it just it shifts responsibly and I, I'm having such a great time I also going to be riding the salsa spearfish it's a full suspension cross-country mountain bike it's yeah yeah it's aggressive it's um but yet comfortable enough to navigate 100 miles over Leadville or the 50 miles of Butte or any of the in-betweens it's I could ride that all day Last question is, what do you love most about biking? I love the freedom that biking gives me. And this might get me choked up, but um, I move differently through this world than most people. And walking isn't always a given to me. But I can still ride a bike most days, even if I can't walk. There's been plenty of times that I've used crutches to get to the start line, um, to get to my garage, to get my leg over a bike. And then as soon as I leave my crutches and I leave the garage behind, I am no longer in pain. And I can take my bike places where my two feet can't take me. I've gone, I love being out in 
the wilderness which surrounds Missoula. I love people, right? I mean, I work with people. I love it. But I also cherish those quiet moments that I can take myself as my own engine where all I hear is my breath and bikes can take me there. I hope you loved that interview with Meg as much as I enjoyed doing it. One of the biggest takeaways I had from Meg is how her impairment, that thing that makes her different from everybody else, is what has allowed her to stand out and be heard. I think so many of us want to be like everybody else and to fit in, but it's really our differences that allow us to make our unique contribution in the world. What about Meg's story resonated with you? Take a moment to head over to the show notes on our website and leave a comment or share the message with a friend who might need it right now. These are crazy times we're in right now and I hope that everybody is doing well. Thanks for listening. Until the next episode, happy riding.